sort of feel like this guest needs no introduction, but that may be because for me, she's such a powerful influence on thinking around affect, obviously, but also feminist politics, anti-colonial resistance, the consequences of representation and misrepresentation. For people that don't know who she is, Sarah Ahmed is the author of many widely read texts from queer phenomenology to living a feminist life and the cultural politics of emotion to what's the use on the uses of use to now most recently, the feminist killjoy handbook, the radical potential of getting in the way. The new book is an interesting experiment in an author thinking back through her work and theorizing the particular structuring principles that guided it the core values, the concepts, and characteristic expressions that give it form. There's a fair bit of conversation in this interview about terms, specifically the term kill, for example, in killjoy, the extremity of that word and the kind of work that it does. I also ask Ahmed about personal reflection in the feminist killjoy handbook, and we talk about the false distinction that gets made between the practice of theory and the lived experience of the theorist. I appreciated how open Sarah was about her foundational sense of the value of killjoy solidarity, even as it's becoming frighteningly clear that this solidarity is required for all the wrong reasons. Because rights are being rolled back, because oppression is intensifying, and the vindictive forces of sexism and racism are differently emboldened today. There's even a discussion here of this seemingly novel but actually quite old concept of cancel culture. Ahmed explains why she's a Roxanne Gay superfan. We talk about Gay's concept of consequence culture as a way of complicating the freighted meaning of cancel culture. Sarah also explains where she thinks the attacks on wokeness are coming from and how they can be countered. I was most heartened, maybe, by her expression of killjoy solidarity with the movements for trans lives and for the alleviation of the climate crisis. These are seemingly very different struggles, but in both instances, there's a normative power to business as usual that is making life very dangerous for people at the margins. For me, the killjoy is, is explicitly about what gets repeated. One of the things I've been really interested in is how we get heard as a broken record. Like, mm. you're stuck on the same point. And in a way, mm -hmm. when we're heard as repeating ourselves, what is not heard is the, the, the structures, the repetitions that we're pointing to. So it becomes about us. We have to keep saying it because they're doing it, but that they're doing it doesn't become audible. So in a way, the repetition that we are heard as repeating ourselves is part of what makes a killjoy's job such a difficult job, but also one from which we learn so much. It's been explicitly part of the intellectual inquiry and my interest in affect and stickiness is partly about what words do and where they go. But actually re returning to my own use of language, that has been a gradual process and there has been, you know, a loosening, I think, of words. And I, I, I actually think that was really more as apparent in living a feminist life. And um, hmm. I, I was writing Living a Feminist Life alongside doing a blog for the first time. My blog I began in 2013, my famous Killjoy blog. And, you know, I felt with that blog it was, it was partly what shifted was a sense of, firstly, um, writing with a much stronger sense of urgency, like I was writing about something that was very, very difficult that was happening where I was working. 
but also writing as a more immediate connection. Like I, I had a sense of writing to people in a way that academic writing often makes it hard to do because there's such a long time involved in the production mm-hmm. of academic work. So there's a sense of immediacy and urgency. And that that the loosening of the language felt very much about connecting to readers. So in a way, I didn't kind of feel like I, I didn't, I haven't worried that I'm losing readers mm. by loosening the language because in a way, right from the start, for me, loosening the language, which is partly about loosening my academic conventions, has actually been about finding a more direct connection to different readers who I always assume or imagine as feminist readers fighting for justice the way that, you know, the feminist killjoy comes to me as a figure in that fight. So. So I haven't, you know, exactly worried that I'm losing it, losing readers, <laughs> although I'm sure it's possible because, of course, I was trying to write a trade book, but I'm still an academic. I still have ridiculously long chapters and, you know, I'm not, it's not snappy and, like, um, fun in the way some trade mm. feminist books might be. It's not pop feminism. Um, and, you know, there was always a concern that I had that I had to give something new to the readers who've stayed with me and made it possible for me to be a writer but I, but I also need to sort of reach readers for whom gender studies might not be, you know, the subject position that they came out of. So I was trying to find a way in which I could address readers who are, who are, who have who been with me for a long time and readers who are coming to the work for the first time. And, you know, you always give something up, however you choose to write the work and hopefully I've managed it, but who knows? <laughs> That's really interesting. I personally think um, the book really works. I mean, you talk about in the book and the invention of a style that includes rhyme and repetition. And and as a person who's you know read many of your books, it's it's clear like that there is more and more of that, as it were, playfulness uh, or improvisation to some extent. What you say though is that that um, technique of rhyme and repetition uh, allows you to breathe. But I sort of appreciate how openly effusive, in a sense, even romantic you are in the book about the need for books as a matter of survival. Yeah. You talk about liberated books, liberating books, books as feminist fire. Um, And I wanted to, you know, you're Sarah Ahmed. I wanted to ask who the people are whose writing has represented that spark for you. Obviously, touchstones are people like Audre Lorde and Gloria Anzaldúa. Do you have have to work against emulating them at all? Or is that kind of, I don't know, uh, uh, overblown and maybe a byproduct of like the sort of individualism that gets overvalued in communication? You know, I, I've never consciously worried about that. And may, maybe I should have done it. I'm not sure. But I've, um, I've, without any question, for me, like when I think about the companionship of, of the feminist killjoy, it's often about the kind of work, the kind of intellectual work, the books, the poems, the prose that have sparked something in me, my imagination, um, my anger, my sense of wonder at the world and how it is, the way it mm. is, how it presents itself. And um, these works, I mean, you mentioned Audre Lorde is, I mean, in a way, I, I think of this work as an ode to Lorde and the incredible work that Lorde has done. And I, I, I don't think I'd even have ever have that worry really particularly in mind because Lorde's mm. voice is, 
is so distinctive and her writing is so speech-like and it commands a certain kind of presence uh, that for me is about opening a conversation with, with somebody who's using language in a very precise way but in a, in a very different way than I ever could. Mm-hmm. So it's always been a sense of what 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 have I connected with? What is the work that's made me go somewhere that I didn't expect to go that has led me somewhere that I couldn't have imagined before I picked up that book? And um, I think it's true, actually, that there is a kind of romantic attachment to the books that have, in a way, I feel like been life-saving. And I often describe Lord's work from my point of view as a kind of lifeline. It helps mm-hmm. pull you out. And you know, there's one there's one tiny bit in Sister Outsider, um, one of the essays in the collection Sister Outsider, where she just uh, Lord just says, racism and sexism are grown up words. It's yeah. a it's a small and delicate description of something that is so familiar. But when when I read that, I'm like, yeah, you experience these 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 phenomena, these forms of power, these forms of violence, without having the words to name what you experience. And so when you come to these words and also to the concepts that surround them, that crystallise them, that make sense of them, it is like a revisiting of your own past as well as your present. And a kind of like, there's a a poetry and a a room making in that act. And I think that's the work that really has mattered to me, is work that has helped me to make sense of things in a different way. And and, and the the romantic attachment is, is partly because I think when you have words and concepts that help you to make sense of something that's been very, very hard and very, very diminishing, it is it is like being able to breathe again. It is like being given more room. There's something freeing as well as seeing in that action. And um, so I, 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 I uh, feel a profound sense of debt and to, to, to work like Audrey Lords, uh, Audrey Lords. And I, I had a line in Living Feminist Life, citation is feminist memory. And I think the concept of like rem- remembering with Lord and other black feminists and feminists of colour, remembering with them and remembering them, bringing them into the text so that you can show how it is that their work enabled you to to begin to do the conceptual work that you're doing. You're never doing it on your own. And the Killjoy is, is, is very much about the companionship that you get from approaching a problem with more than one um, point of view. Um, and that idea of companionship is itself like this sort of uh, concept that gives me a feeling of um, leverage, as it were, on like what we're doing when we're going to these books for kind of a, a guidance. You know, the the touchstone for many people in terms of thinking about decolonization in you know the university, but more broadly in in all of these institutions. Uh, these colonial institutions is Eve Tuck and K. Wayne Yang's decolonization is not a metaphor. And I, I often think about how, like, at the end of that essay, they're they're citing Lord. Like they say, black feminist thought roots freedom in that well of feeling and wisdom from which all knowledge is recreated. And then they quote Lord as saying, within these deep places, each one of us holds an incredible reserve of creativity and power of unexamined and unrecorded emotion and feeling just this idea that like freedom is a felt thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet, you know, a lot of the questions that I want to ask you are about sort of these um, different affective registers through which we think, um, you know, the, 
so often when you're introduced um, at a keynote, you're you're sort of cited as provoking the affective turn, and for good reason. And it's it's just funny to me that you write at one point in the handbook that the extremity of the kill in feminist killjoy is telling us something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's judged as deadly to kill certain joys that obviously need killing. Um, and and there's something affective about that feeling of extremity. So like, I guess the question is like, what is the extremity of the kill? Like, is it about the vilifying of those who would attack the pleasures of others? Like, what's it telling us? Um, to put it differently, like, how does the extremity of the language maybe serve the purpose of like defending established power relationships? Yeah, I think the extremity of the language is is, is really worth holding on and wondering about that, like what it means for certain kinds of freedoms, um, struggles to be understood and felt as being the end of life, civilization, the end of everything, the end of happiness. You know, I just, it made me think the other day I was reading a, um, just a short piece in the Times Higher Education Supplement by an emeritus professor from a UK university. And he was talking about um, the efforts to 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 make um, having sexual relationships between professors and students um, to, to, to prohibit them. And mm-hmm. he said, oh, it would be, quote unquote, the end of life as we know it. <laughs> and wow. I was just really struck by this, like this, the mm-hmm. end of life as we know it. So when we try to develop new norms of conduct that are about recognising power in institutions mm-hmm. like universities, those who are invested in maintaining their relation to others in those institutions understand that work as the end of life as right. we know it. So there, yeah. there's something about that, the way in which um, to call into question an, a norm and investment and entitlement understood as punishing, punishing others and depriving them of what they experience as theirs. And that's mm-hmm. what you like to do feminist work. You can feel like you're coming up against other people's sense of entitlement to something. Also, yeah. to someone. And um, the killjoy then becomes, yes, understood as the end of something, but it's also a way in which you, you begin to understand that the extremity is also how, like, the warning becomes quickly from a punishment. Like, the, in the killjoy is a threat that you will be understood as the end of life as we know it, but that there will be consequences. That's the consequence of your action, that you then will be deprived of your relation to those institutional forms and norms. And and so, you know, when sometimes when I'm talking about the kill joy, it's often about killing joy in the context of a conversation. You become the problem because you point to the problem. But very mm. often these conversations are also about like how we are in institutions, whether it's something privatised like the family or public institutions like universities or other workplaces. And what you're really having is you're having a, a battle over what, what is permissible to say and to do. And a lot of the killjoy, the extremity of the discourse around the feminist killjoy is telling us something about how, I don't know, feminism but also queer politics is understood as a break with what is seen as ours and as essential to our well-being or our happiness. Mm -hmm. You really understand the nature of social investments when you begin to question them. Um, You really understand how hard it is to change institutions when you try to change them and that's part of what the killjoy is teaching us. 
Mm -hmm. And yeah, I want to pick up on this sort of um, interrogation, I guess, uh, investigation of change itself Mm -hmm. that seems to be at the heart of especially this newest book. But I just want to, you know, quickly shout out your book, Complaint, exclamation point, which talks at length about the, you know, it's a perfect supplement to the article that I think you're citing in a way because you you talk at, at length about um, the kind of esteemed professor glibly talking about like perks of the job, invoking yeah. power um, to sort of winnow his way into these exploitative power relationships. But yeah, the the one of the things I think that um, reading your work again has me thinking a lot about is um, the set of assumptions that go into sort of um, figuring the human capacity for change. You write at one point, if we change our relation to the dynamics around us, they can change. Or if we can, they can. There's a school of thought uh, in organizations that gets called change management (sighs) that's like predicated on the assumption, I think, that human beings as such really fundamentally resist change, um, no matter their social position or level of privilege. Uh, And I just find it to be somehow unconvincing, like heuristically, it just doesn't make sense to me. And one of the key insights in the handbook is that the killjoy becomes more salient during times of intense social transformation. Yeah. That social transformation is the result of many intersecting forces, but one just kind of has to be a generalized increase in the social willingness to embrace change, I think. Um, So do you think that aversion to change is like the exclusive property of the privilege? Do do we need to think about how privilege factors into like the willingness to embrace change? And where do you kind of land on this ideology that says we're all just set in our ways? Well, I mean, I, I, I disagree with that ideology, just to be put it bluntly. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think in What's the Use, one of the things I was really interested in was how the role of of, of, of small action, like um, mm-hmm. the more a path is used, the more a path is used. So you you right. walk that way. And in the act of walking that way, the path in front of you becomes clearer and easier to use, which makes it more likely that you walk that way. So there's a way in which the um, um, the, the, the formation of habits or tendencies makes change harder. Mm-hmm. I, I think I would argue that. But that that's precisely the opposite point. It, it's not saying that there's something intrinsic that is about, change is inevitably something that is being resisted by human beings as such. It's rather trying to explain how the resistance to change happens institutionally. And in a way, that's what I would see some of the work that I've been doing is partly to try and give a better explanation of the difficulty of changing histories that become very sedimented and harden as walls, as closed doors and, and so on. Um, mm-hmm. So I think uh, I'm I'm also very interested in uh, trying to explain how things don't uh, don't change by appearing to change, which is why actually some of the critiques that I did early on in in my work around diversity also figured quite prominently in the, in the handbook, the way mm-hmm. in which organisations claim to have changed, often by pointing to the work we do to protest their absence of change. And I'm thinking here of when I left um, my job. One of the things the university said was, oh, look, we've had all these conferences on sexual harassment that the students and I had organised because of what they weren't doing. So the mm-hmm. work you do because they haven't changed becomes usable as evidence that they have. 
and you end up in this very paradoxical and, and, and weird situation where the claim to change can actually conceal the ongoing need to continue to interrupt and to challenge how power works in that institution. Um, and I, the other thing I was quite interested in really making clear in the handbook is how change often is seen as forced, like you force us to change. So change becomes um, understood as kind of like the outsider, like the way in which uh, diversity today or things like pronouns become quickly identified as compelled speech. So it's almost like there's a way yeah. in which there's, a, there's the assumption of we have these freedoms until you force us to give up them up. And so the kind mm. of positioning of ra more radical change as coming from the outside is part of the reproductive dynamics. And I, th I think in a way that there's an effort in, in the handbook to sort of explain what I call reproductive dynamics, the ways in which um, those who, well, really as simple as this, those who are, who are more likely to progress within institutions are those who are willing to reproduce them. Yeah. And that certainly doesn't identify those who resist change only with the privilege. If anything, it explains how the resistance to change becomes a recruiting device. Because you might be told that in order to get anywhere in the institution, you shouldn't complain. You shouldn't become a troublemaker. You'll be perceived like that. You won't get anywhere. So you might be told if you're a junior a scholar or if you're a student or if you're just at an early stage of your career that you should wait till later. Then mm. later you can express yourself but right now stay quiet do what you can say yes say yes say yes that's sorry that's mm. my dog saying yeah, no yeah. i think <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and 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 so 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 the the effort i've been involved in i guess is just to explain then the ways in which sort of progression gets tied to polishing i call it where you actually do the work of affirming the institution as it is and often you know representing its commitments to diversity and equality so you become you become implicated in the creation mm -hmm. of the appearance of change in order to get anywhere and I, I wanted to understand and to explain and to describe those dynamics and I think the figure of the killjoy helps us to do that um, because the killjoy becomes the institutional killjoy the one who gets slowed down by actually saying no to these various techniques that tell us that to get somewhere we have to actually agree with the value systems that are the ones that we're entering into by having the kind of jobs that we have yeah the you know what you call getting in the way yeah reminds me of bell hooks notion that i i constantly come back to of like intervening and disrupting you know yeah. like and and you know i just recently shifted over to sort of public service and there are ways that it's freed me to be more comfortable in my communication. And I find that really strange. Like this reading group that I, um, that was a lifeline for me within academia mm. sort of was, was there to show all of us, I think, how institutions were about how an infrastructure gets solidified through privilege, through, uh, you know, those who possess and police privilege, basically. And like that still exists in government, yeah. but yeah. It has a particular power in academia, but you know, you brought up your your resignation, um, and and you know, there's this really sort of deep history of your relationship with their organizational life in the handbook. So I thought we could take our discussion there, yeah, um, or or dig a little deeper into it. You say that you've been uh, misperceived for much of your career, not not taken seriously. You say at one point, "We are told who we are." Um, I wondered if you wanted to talk about where you are in terms of that desire for recognition, you know, knowing that 
as you say, we are constantly being sent reminders that this is a competition, that to do well is to do better than others. You know, are you pretty content with the feminist killjoy as your companion to <laughs> ignore the approval of the bodies that do sort of still decide the value of thinkers and communicators? Or, you know, do you feel like you get to say who you are now for the most part? You know, I, I mean, it's a good question. I think that, um, I mean, I, I have no, I have actually, to be perfectly honest, I don't have a desire to be recognized, for example, mm. as a philosopher or as a anyone trained within a traditional discipline, partly because I'm not. Like, I was not trained in philosophy. I mm-hmm. had a kind of very um, queer academic history, doing a bit of this and doing a bit of that. And um, I, I think I've written in the past, I wrote this in Queer Phenomenology, that there is that you have this worry when you're interdisciplinary in the way that I've been, that you're not going to be adequate to those for whom disciplines are homes. Um, you worry you're going to get things wrong because you can't refer text back to the, the proper histories in the way that's consistent with disciplinary norms. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I, but I, I actually think that having those worries about inadequacy are not like negative things necessarily. I think it's always good to be concerned about whether one is adequate in the work that you do. Not not to see that necessarily as about aiming for adequacy like mm-hmm. aiming to be received mm-hmm. well but just rather you know it is always possible that any of us can't can can fail to do justice to the to the to the work that we engage with because of the questions we're asking so so the sense of like I think I have a line in the feminist culture philosopher philosopher chapter about not being really a philosopher but I I, I didn't mean I meant that in a positive way like I I don't sure. want to really be a philosopher and to think of myself as one is not to be one and that not mm-hmm. being one is actually about having more having more room to move because disciplines can be um you know important skill sets but they can mm-hmm. also be about having to reproduce a very particular inheritance a, a particular way of reading they can be about actually ignoring what is outside that discipline's way of doing things or of knowing mm-hmm. things so what might look like inadequacy inadequacy from one point of view is actually more room uh, from another. Um, but I did have a reflection in the Kiljoy as Poet uh, chapter about, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm engaging as really quite closely with Audre Lorde's essay about poetry is not a luxury, about how hard it is to leave a path that you've been on. And I've been in academics, you know, since I was in my mid-20s, like all my all my adult life, really. It was yeah. what I was used to. And there's a kind of structure and a trajectory that you go that you go through. You promotion and 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 all of that, you know, that that that's part of an academic pathway. So to leave that and to leave the kind of things that would ordinarily follow, even if that's by because you you wanted to do so, you wanted to leave that. It can still leave you feeling ambivalent and mm. feeling that mm-hmm. you might have missed something, missed the things that might have followed if you'd stayed on that path. Um, so there's right. a way in which I wanted to be quite honest about that, that even though um, I'm glad not to be in academia and I needed to not be in academia to do the work of complaint, I, I couldn't have done that book if I'd stayed in it, I don't think. I needed not to be in academia just because the, the cost of fighting to get the work of sexual to get sexual harassment recognized was just was, was too much so I, I needed not to be there but that doesn't mean that I don't every now and then feel that pull of oh you know I'm no longer 
going for some of the things that I would have gone for had I stayed on that path. I think it's just, it's a little bit um, related to what, um, it's, it's sort of related in a, like, a little queer way to what Roxane Gay talks about in Bad Feminist when she talks about feeling messy and mixed and ambivalent. Like you, sure. you, 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 you like certain things at another level you reject and mm-hmm. you want certain things at another level you reject. But, but, but really when, I'm, when I think about it at a, at a fundamental level, I'm really glad that it was possible for me to leave that path because, you know, if I hadn't left, I wouldn't have been able to be so open and so public about what had been going on at that institution, which meant that, you know, it would still be a secret. All of those inquiries that happened, all of that material, all of that reality would have been, you know, just hidden away in the institutional filing cabinets. And I'm glad that by getting out, I got that 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 story out that's that that's mm. one thing that i've done that I, I actually feel that you know is really important and valuable and the connections that i developed with those students some of whom are academic some of whom couldn't couldn't go go on um mm. have been very life affirming yeah i mean it almost feels when i read complaint like you're inventing a methodology <laughs> um like i just don't know that i'd read a book like that and it i can now kind of better understand why mm-hmm. um you know i think there's a moment toward the end of what's the use where you talk about how a network coming alive mm-hmm. um to sort of defend an organization and and how like when you say a network is coming alive you don't mean like a network of people necessarily it's it's more like a network of positions within yeah. this kind of you know hive and and at the same time there's this kind of <laughs> a little bit kind of flippant statement where you say like, you know, it's not to say that there are secret meetings happening though. They probably do happen. Right. Like it's, it's like they're, they're happening as a knock on effect of the network coming alive. Yeah. Um, And I see how you maybe couldn't have written um, an ethnography as it were of the institution from inside it. Uh, As you say, the risk would have been really intense, but um you know, of all your books, it seems, it feels to me like the Feminist Killjoy Handbook has the most intensely autobiographical character. You know, you're you're narrating snapping, snapping out of it, snapping back, mm-hmm. finding the logic of feminist ire, uh, mm-hmm. feminist fire, and figuring out uh, ways to fight um, for for your readers and for yourself. And it is really intense. And and I guess I wanted to ask um, whether it was intense to write in such an overtly autobiographical way at this point. It's not that you haven't put yourself in your books before, but there's a lot of personal stuff in the book. And I wondered if it was uncomfortable to be that sort of inward seeking. I mean, it's a good question. And I, I, um, I guess whilst I was writing it, I didn't sort of think of this as being more personal than other texts that I've mm. I've written. In a way, I kind of feel like I've often put myself in the writing. Like, even if it's not so obvious, I felt really there. Like, mm-hmm. it's, I think about in queer phonology, how I talked a lot about being my, my experience as somebody coming from a mixed heritage background that really informed right. the third chapter of that book and talking about becoming, becoming a lesbian in sort of mid, midlife in the middle part of that book so it's a very philosophical book but in terms of disclosure there's a lot of details about my life I even include quotes from things that my sister said to me and I I sometimes feel I ought to 
apologize to my sister because I didn't actually get her permission <laughs> to uh, quote from her. But there, there's so, so for me as a writer, it's felt like the personal has always been there, even though the books probably read quite differently. So it, it didn't, mm. it didn't feel like a big shift writing the feminist called Joe Hamble, even mm-hmm. though, and also living a feminist life had quite a lot of details about my childhood and childhood experiences of physical violence by my father. And so there's, a, there's yeah. a, it, I think it is a vulnerable way of writing, but I've never thought of myself as, as the, the kind of, um, it's just what comes out, you know, mm-hmm. it's, 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 I've never sort of thought I'm going to write personally or not personally in this or that way. It's just, I'm trying to write, something like it's a question i'm following youth i'm following diversity i'm trying to work out how did happiness lose its hat the question is is the animation and then Mm -hmm. what comes out is just how i how how i how i put the question out there sometimes it's a personal detail that comes to mind and when i think back you're going really far back when i was doing my phd this is like in the the early 1990s i i I was doing this phd on i don't know postmodernism and feminist theory i think it was and I was sitting there trying to think of an example and um, it, the chapter was on subjectivity and I was thinking about an example and, and an example came to mind at this time when I'd been stopped as a young person in Adelaide and asked if I was Aboriginal by the police and it had been turned out that there had been some burglaries in the area and that was the example, this personal example that, that came to mind that led me then to think about the stranger and how the Aboriginal subject gets positioned as dangerous and what it meant to be somebody who wasn't Aboriginal, who gets sought, who got seen as one and how that gave me room to leave that situation safely. And a lot of what followed um, in terms of the book Strange Encounters and thinking about strangers came from mm-hmm. this sort of personal moment. But it wasn't like it, the memory just came to me as I was trying to conceptualise, as I was trying to think through the question of subjectivity. Sure. So that, that's how it feels a little bit like. It's like things pop into you, it pop into my mind. And sometimes it's, like, I don't know, Mrs. Dalloway. I'm, I'm thinking about what it means to disappear or how happiness can involve disappearance. And I remember Mrs. Dalloway walking down the street, wondering about how she herself disappeared. And it's like the text is in the background because I've read it, but it comes to mind as I'm trying to, work mm-hmm. something through and, and that's how it felt with Feminist Kill Joe Hamble which I actually um, really really enjoyed writing when I first began the process I was like oh Sarah how can I possibly have anything else to say about Feminist Kill Joe it's like <laughs> I've been there like I've been doing that but mm-hmm. actually as I was taking that journey and trying to think about you know we, we uh, uh, in the opening comments we talked about repetition I was trying to think about some of the lines from the earlier work like um to expose a problem is to pose a problem. I was mm-hmm. trying to think about, well, how how can I say that again? Like I've done it, but immediately began to think about, well, it's a killjoy truth. Or mm. rolling eyes equals feminist pedagogy that's appeared in a few different books. That's a killjoy equation. And I was remember actually coming to this idea, oh, well, actually I can use these as truths and equations and maximums of commitments as I was out there walking my dog. <laughs> I was like, hmm. how can this, how can the repetition um, not simply weigh it down? How can I make the the need to say the same thing something that is a striking, like it, it presents yeah. itself in a different way? Like a structuring principle, like a motif. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so that, so that, so that was sort of the, the process of writing. Felt more like, you know, how do I, how do I bring the material to live in a way that actually shows things that I've I've showed before, but 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 in a bolder way. So it didn't sort of feel like I'm opening myself up in a different way because I felt I'm I'm already like 
embarrassingly personal in my writing. <laughs> it was more like, how can I make the feminist killjoy, who's always been a figure that people have really responded to? I mean, that's why when I decided to write a trade book, I used the killjoy as my companion because people get yeah. it. Uh, mm -hmm. wherever I spoke and whether it's in universities or outside them, people are like, yeah, I've been there. I've been the person who becomes a problem for pointing to a problem. I've been in that place sure. and the killjoy can be a place. So I knew that I was going to use the killjoy to make that connection. And actually um, it, it, it felt like I was learning by actually thinking through my own journey. Um, so it's not just that the killjoy arrived and you know the problems of happiness actually trying to think about the ways in which the killjoy helps me make sense of my own writing trajectory and and, mm -hmm. and, and so the the writing we felt more about how can i make the work um connect to readers in a slightly different way and it, it didn't it didn't really feel like it was more personal than than yeah. other work that i've done before well yeah i just spoke to or just released um a conversation with amanda butzkus and she she kind of um, throws down the gauntlet and says, you know, there's this separation between personal writing and theoretical writing. And she's like, no way. Like, there's just no separation for her. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think like this is why maybe one of the most personal statements in a sense in the book might be um, your sort of explanation of why you can identify as a feminist killjoy and also describe it as your companion, right? It's mm -hmm. this feels like it's this idea that it's, yes, a figure, it's a fighter, it's an oppositional mode, but it's also a mode that you occupy at times. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, all that really resonated, you know, just the radical honesty in the book. Um, and of course, like the things that I obviously can't relate to have to do with being read in specific ways, socially and culturally, because you're a queer woman of color. And I wanted to, you know, sort of on some level explore how you are thinking in the book through the, um, you know, attitudes of so many homophobic idiots and mm. close-minded colonial white men. Um, and yeah, you know, one of the dominant ideas here and elsewhere in your work um, that I frequently cite is this idea of resignation. Uh, you say here, resignation can sound passive, even fatalistic, as if you are just holding up your hands and resigning yourself to your fate. But resignation can uh, be an act of feminist protest. Could you just kind of speak to where that framework comes from and why you decided to repeat it in the book? Yeah, well, I mean, um, I, th I think of uh, sometimes one way of saying no to an institution, like when you've been worn down by it, is to withdraw, is to withdraw your labor as well as your sense right. of hope that the institution can be transformed by the work mm -hmm. that you've been doing. And um, in a way, sometimes withdrawal is how you hold on to the project. You mm -hmm. you realise that the work that you're doing where you are, you're not getting anywhere. And so, so to resign is to actually say, I'm, I'm not going to stay working for you, for an institution that will not recognise the harassment as an institutional problem. And um, when I was resigning, um, uh, from my job obviously it's a very big thing to do it didn't feel like a big thing at the time it felt more like oh my god it, after three years we still couldn't even get them to make a public statement that there had been inquiries it's like they hadn't happened which was mm -hmm. which was the effect as I say that they were looking for there was this incredible silence this wall of silence and it was all justified under the language of confidentiality but that was very convenient because actually 
this, the information that wasn't being released was information that would risk the institution's reputation as being this equal, diverse, progressive, even radical institution. So, um, you know, when I when I shared my resignation on my blog um, back in 2016, it was just a short statement, but it, it was very it was it was it had a, a reaction, a, an impact that I had no idea was going to happen. Like people responded. I got messages from all over the world. It got picked up by the British media in a very unhelpful way. Um, which was actually quite difficult for me because I'm actually really, really shy. And I found the whole kind of media attention thing really, like it was just something I couldn't, could hardly manage to bear. But um, it meant that people, people, um, people kind of communicated with me. They, they, mm-hmm. they found out, you know, what was going on, partly because I've just made a public no. Like I just said, I'm, I'm resigning because there's been these sexual harassment cases and I, I'm protesting and I'm also, I've had enough. And it, mm-hmm. it led people to me. And that was the really big, that, that was the most important point. So it was incredibly frustrating that the institution then covered it up and said, you know, oh, you know, we're really committed to equality and diversity and we're opposed to sexual harassment. And they did, went into PR. I mean, of course, that's predictable. That was really predictable. But actually, that, didn't, that wasn't as important as a way in which people actually connected to me and, and, and came to me. And, and, and that's where the book complaint came from, really, is mm-hmm. the fact that when I resigned, people found me and they shared their stories with me because there's so few places to go. So one thing that a resignation can do is it can just be a public refusal to go along with something. And that really tells me something about what the killing joy as an action is because sometimes you can feel really alone. And I, there were times when I certainly felt like that. But, you know, when you say no l- loud enough so that people can hear it, other people can pick up on something they might feel that their own action which perhaps was silently done no one knew about it or heard about it they might feel a sense of community with you or they might feel more that it's possible themselves to to make a no public and there's a kind of way in which each action each time you actually make something public a refusal to go along with the requirement to say yes to the institution that, that, that other people can pick it up. And, yeah. and, and that, that's actually one of the things that resigning, my act of resigning taught me, but it's also one of the ways in which I think resignation can be protested partly the effects it has on, on other people, that, mm-hmm. it, that, it, that it creates a space in which people can actually sense that there's a point to saying no and that there's an ear, there's someone who's going to receive that and understand that. And mm-hmm. you're standing with other people when you say, when you say no in that way. And, and it, you know, uh, it, it to me links up with the, the sentence from the book that it feels like you're writing it with intense feeling. Um, you say, when we are weary, because we are weary, we need to be in alliance. Yeah. And it does feel like that kind of solidarity itself is a strategy that can be, um, you know, a source of strength for um, the, the, the folks that have been historically silenced. I mean, this book also marks the first foray, I think, in your writing um, into what's called, for better or for worse, cancel culture. Yeah. Um, you know, the cancel culture is, is certainly, if nothing else, about saying no. And I thought it would be interesting uh, to just kind of ask you to expand on what you're working through here. I mean, 
you call yourself a Roxanne Gay super fan, I think, in the book. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, for Roxanne Gay, cancel culture is actually just consequence culture, exactly. a moment where there are consequences for violent acts and violent words. Uh, those things become imaginable and meaningful. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the case, I think, that um, so much of cancel culture feels to be about what we're allowed to find funny or even moving. Um, you talk about the touchiness with which those who are touched by a film reject the rejection of that same piece of culture by someone maybe more critical. Um, you know, what I loved here was this sort of subtly complex observation that if you're idealizing something, you're missing something about it. Mm -hmm. um, like if we love Game of Thrones and can't hear someone critique its celebration of sexual violence, like maybe we're missing something. Yeah. You're also saying that we can, we can ourselves love something and then learn to disavow it too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that in particular, I guess, is something that I, I hoped you could expand on, that kind of loss of confidence in the things that we love because it just feels like cancel culture is so often reduced to just like, the killjoy hectoring others for the things that they find fun. To what extent is cancel culture about kind of understanding the value of being held accountable in your appreciation of, of things, the things you enjoy? Well, I think it's a very good question. Um, and I, yes, I am a Roxanne Gay super fan to put that out there again. <laughs> um, I think it's just incredible. Um, and I agree with her um, way of rethinking cancel culture as being about accountability and consequences. I mean, I think with the, figure of the killjoy and also the figure of the complainer and I'll be writing a complainer's handbook um why well, I am writing a complainer's handbook now um which you know takes that figure of the complainer um recognizes the, the reality of hegemonic complainers like Karen but takes that figure of a complainer and the killjoy and puts them together because I think one of the things that both these figures are, are often used to, to to imply is that the act of saying no is often presented as an individualistic thing. Like mm -hmm. you're putting your critique first and other people's attachments to something, to community, to culture, to an object are then under threat. So the way in which the killjoy and the complainer are often seen as being individualistic um, mm -hmm. against a, a, a we that is, it has its enjoyments. I think it's, that's part of what I'm doing the critique to, 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 to of and doing a critique mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. that precise um, rendering of, I mean, and in a way, the, the promise of happiness, the chapter on the feminist killjoy there was also how, like, feminism itself got understood as being really, really selfish, like a, an individual me who who doesn't do what would make their parents happy is seen as being selfish, not putting the family first. So there's a way mm -hmm. in which anyone who challenges norms or conventions is seen as putting themselves first. Or if you make a complaint about sexual harassment on your MA program, many students have told me this, they got told that they were being very, very selfish because they were putting their complaints and their concerns about violence on that program in front of the collective interest in having um, the MA program be taught by that professor. So the claim that mm -hmm. the action of killing joy or complaining is selfish is part of those, what we call those reproductive mechanisms, is how that we coheres as having certain rights and pleasures that then get to be defended in a certain kind of way. So, I mean, in terms of cancel culture, I did want to begin with the critique of the critique of cancel culture, mm -hmm. um, just partly because I just think it's so important to, to do so and the way in which those who often represent themselves as having been cancelled are 
very you know often actually promoting themselves and their own work through that very discourse they go on these cancellation tours about talking endlessly about how silenced they are and I, I think there's a general way in which I'm very interested in talking about how um, those who are most dominant in terms of public culture often represent themselves as being censored and right. so there's a kind of reversal of power um, those who challenge what is being said and done within public discourse get seen as being all powerful even if you don't have any power you're seen as having a will to power as trying to deprive other people of what is theirs and those who actually have a lot of um you know who are in the mainstream press who have um sponsorships and deals still can talk of themselves as as as, as being deprived of speech of speech so yeah. this is partly just trying to get at that mechanism of power and to describe that mechanism of power and also to look at like i, I start with a, a very sort of what might look like quite a silly story about cheese rolling which you probably mm-hmm. haven't heard of but um it's a tradition tradition in one town in the uk in, uh, you roll a cheese and there was this story about how you know political correctness gone mad it was the story about how cancel culture health and safety killjoys are ending this great british tradition but it turned out that, you know, it was just a logistical issue. And their only reason that event had been cancelled was because they couldn't they had too many people the year before and they they couldn't afford they couldn't afford to run it. So the story True. became about the cancellation of a tradition when really it was about the cancellation of an event. And I'm very, very right, interested yeah. in how often the narratives around cancel culture actually inflate what is going on and make it about something that it is not, in order to cast the person who in, in order to cast like um, any change or any deviation from practice as being the responsibility of this imagined person who is offended or concerned about health and safety or who is is, is in effect the killjoy. So yeah. that, that, that's why I think the killjoy offers us a lens to think about actually this, the cancel culture. It might be a new term, but it's a very, very old problem. Uh, whenever people, you know, you know, try and question how things are being done or open up how things are being done, they are understood as stopping something mm-hmm. from happening in a very particular way. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you just have to look at the wave of transphobic legislation in the United States, which weaponizes sort of a misinformed fear um, among you know very conservative uh, folks about like gender affirming care, yeah. which yeah, I mean, it's it's been utterly misrepresented to be something that it is simply not in order to justify um, the, yeah, the legislation of, of basically hatred. And it's so much, there's so much derisive laughter right now um, that is shamefully directed at transgender folks that, yeah. you know, coupled with the the legally sanctioned uh, transphobia is is really making the world very dangerous for um, trans people. Yeah. Here in Canada, we've just seen a sweeping series of nationwide anti-trans hate marches yeah. um, that were met, thankfully, by you know tons of counter protests by advocates of trans lives and trans liberation. Yeah. But these marches used precisely the rhetoric that trans people are endangering children. Um, and accuse the education system of enabling trans identification somehow to the dismay of parents for whom, you know, being trans is like a worst case scenario, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the, that's the underlying assumption is that there, there could be nothing worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like this unstated thing. Um, you know, I guess on that, t- 
topic, like what would you say to the people who would stand in the way of this attack on the freedom of trans kids in school and in society? I mean, I, I wrote this book with full uh, kind of killjoy solidarity, as I call it. And killjoy solidarity, by that I mean solidarity in the face of what we come up against or solidarity we need to face what we come up against. Before full killjoy solidarity with trans people who, um, you know, in the UK, we have been trying to get um, the government to ban conversion therapy. One of the main reasons they're not doing that is because of the impact of anti-trans sentiment and the ways in which that has been legitimated through so-called feminism, feminism, um, what they call themselves gender-critical feminists over here. The real really good case of gender-critical feminists who represent themselves as being silenced and um, censored, but actually hold dominant positions in media and have, you know, the the ear of the prime minister who's talking now about women being cancelled and using the concept of biological sex in the equality legislation. And and the whole thing feels actually quite terrifying, to be be Mm -hmm. perfectly honest. And it's been a, a massive loss for so many of us, trans people especially, obviously, but also the the kind of work that is being done to justify this anti-trans mo- moment and movement is actually work that's also undoing so much feminism. Like it's really countering a lot of the feminist arguments for bodily autonomy, for a self-definition that is about um, understanding that biological sex, sex and gender, these are historically made categories that are permeable and moving and the kind of work that's being done that kind of sex is real gender is fiction model of feminist work it is it, it's a massive loss and it feels actually quite scary in the uk you know it's anti-trans it's also very anti-queer there's a lot of right. uh the kind of like panic around um some of the legislation against um uh gay and lesbian people that they were recruiting children it's, it's coming back through the kind of fear of trans people and gender affirming care and it, so it, it feels like a very actually very very scary and when I did the book tour for the UK edition you know we talked a lot about that as a as, as a people in the room you know who are there mm-hmm. out of solidarity with each other what it felt like right now and, and it, it did feel like things that you maybe even you know you thought were coming like a recognition um of our complex lives as gender subjects of creating space for each other to to be who we understand ourselves to be asking each other how to address each other these simple ways of creating room for each other all of Mm -hmm. that it feels like it's going or in some sense it's almost gone and we're gonna Mm -hmm. have to fight right from the beginning and it's 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 not it's, it's it's a scary time and i think it's really there's a time like this that we need to be in solidarity all all the more Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the feminist killjoy then becomes this sort of um, it's it's hard to keep pushing, pushing, and wow. pushing, and and this is why you you talk about sort of self care, community care as as survival strategies. Mm-hmm. It just you know it's it's also the case that that killjoy solidarity is about recognizing that the feminist killjoy is this sort of exemplar of how to have and manage difficult conversations. Um, you point out that the killjoy from its inception is seen as a person who interrupts some conviviality, some mm-hmm. civility. Yeah. Killjoy politics, you say, is seen as mean spirited. You know, it's it's 
difficult. I struggle myself because I want to stay positive, but like the news is never good. The reality (laughs) is that there's no easy solution and, and things are getting worse. Um, You know, I realize you're not explicitly talking about the challenges that are wrapped up in climate action and energy transition, but this is, you know, the main area I work in and I see all kinds of ways that the feminist killjoy can help us with the work of mainstreaming all this disruptive and difficult change that needs to happen, um, you know, to the system of colonial capitalism, basically, yeah. uh, that's got us in this mess. And and there's actually a lot of quotations from Lord that you invoke that make me see that connection very clearly. Like yeah. you point out, Lord um, suggested that we be vigilant for the smallest opportunity to make a change. She wrote about survival in terms of how she should she should define the shape of her impact on the earth. Um, so I, I shared this the sense that, you know, being a feminist killjoy can get or the feminist killjoy's companion can kind of help us um, identify the ways that inequality, for example, is at the heart of the crisis. Um, I guess, you know, the, the question for me is, you know, have you heard from any of your readers, for example, that the feminist killjoy is a figure that helps them encourage a more radical version of climate activism, one that isn't so mired in this kind of like hope against everything, optimism, positivity. Um, and, and you kind of see a way out of that logic of like spinning the message endlessly to make things seem more glossy and smooth than they are. I mean, I, ha- I wouldn't say I have re- heard from readers specifically about that. Although mm. I can, I mean, I think, um, so many people have got in touch with me about how the killjoy sort of helps them navigate systems violent systems that are about extraction you know Mm -hmm. extractivism um the best they can that um i don't know when i think about the lords and the law quotes what there's one quote actually i think it i think it's from the cancer journals where she talks about am i am i fighting um sort of the chemical chemicals in our food and she evokes Mm-hmm. environmental catastrophe that's not the word she uses but she evokes that in order to avoid my first responsibility to be happy <laughs> and you know she's given us the answer to the question actually to think of your first responsibility as being your own happiness is how you avoid responsibility for envi- the environmental situation for the climate for other people for for the earth for the finitude of its resources Mm-hmm. So I think there's a way in which kind of the climate killjoy is right there in the kind of in the work that the killjoy comes into and goes out of. Um, so I think that there are many ways we, we could imagine that. I mean, I think as well, when the, the survival question for me is about like our own finite resources. Like there's only so much we can take in because mm-hmm. there's only so much we can take on is one of the killjoy truths of the handbook. Right. And the, 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 one of the killjoy survival tips is remember there's only so much you can do. So I think there's a sense of understanding the limits of one's own capacity, sometimes, you know, registering the full reality of our global situation is too much or it can be too much and you need to preoccupy, you need to do things and think of these smallest opportunities for change. And I think that's, that's okay because there mm. is, it is so hard to take it in. Mm-hmm. And yet it's sometimes that we need to we need to let it be too much. We need to let ourselves be shattered 
by a recognition of the reality of what is going on around us. And we need to do that at the times that we know that we can be involved in a political movement that's about putting ourselves back together again. I, I don't think the killjoy gets us out of any situations that we're in. The killjoy is kind of a handle that we can use to help us navigate our relationships to the worlds that we know we have to fight to change on behalf of others who are to come and not just ourselves. Um, beautifully, beautifully put. Um, I can't thank you enough for being so generous with your time. This has been incredible. Oh, thank you. And it, it was very uh, obvious to me, Scott, how carefully and closely you've, you've read the handbook. I'm really appreciative of that as well, because it's the time that you give to it, it means a lot. <laughs>